Um, so the title, which is just really a quotation from the verse that often gets used, is uh, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? We talk about in context what that likely means. Um, but before we get to that, um, I, I'll be a little quicker than I normally am on this opening part, but I do want to keep before us consistently what the Bible claims it is. And uh, we speak a lot about inspiration and authority and um, all that sort of thing when we talk about the scriptures. But I think it's important that we remind ourselves what the Bible says it is. And 2 Timothy reminds us that it has been preserved for us that we might live rightly, that it is for right living. Second Peter reminds us that the, at least the First Testament is primarily an interpretation of history and that that interpretation did not originate in the minds of human beings, but they wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So I'm not going to get into all the implications of saying it that way, but those aren't my words. I mean, that's Second Peter's words. Our job is to, to wrestle with what that means. And those two first verses I've said each week, and I'll say again, related to the First Testament, because at the time they were written, there was no New Testament. That's not to say that there weren't apostolic teachings. There certainly were. Peter and the other apostles had been teaching the church for decades by the time uh, these verses were written. But we didn't have our compendium of 27 books written or authorized by apostles yet. So when they're making these comments, they're principally talking about the First Testament. But John 14 and other verses like it, though this is probably one of the better ones, uh, helped to lay the foundation for why the apostles were seen by the church as authorized to do a similar task that the prophets of ancient Israel were authorized to do, which is to write something that would be authoritative for us. And in John 14, um, the, pro the apostles are promised by Jesus that the Holy Spirit would be sent to them and that his relation to them would be very specific that he would remind them of everything Jesus had taught, and that he would teach them uh, new things. And that becomes a foundational belief for the church, that the apostles have been given a special spirit, or a, the spirit is working specially within them, that sets them apart. You'll see this argument in Paul, uh, for instance, probably no better book than Galatians. Either Paul is the most arrogant human being who ever lived, or he understands apostleship in a very specific way because he says to the people in Galatia that if anyone were to teach them a gospel other than the one Paul himself delivered, then that person would be cut off forever from Christ. That is a powerful word if he just thought that to be true. But again, passages like this one in John, even though Paul wasn't here, which is part of his problem, and why he has to protest. There's really no debate in the early church whether Peter, James, John, the other apostles have this kind of authority. Paul has to really fight for it because Jesus came to him, authorized him, and called him uh, individually. And uh, that is a strange calling. So strange, in fact, that in Galatians, Paul also says that he had to go back to Jerusalem, be interviewed by the apostles, which he doesn't seem to have appreciated, and they authorized him, which he didn't believe he needed. <laughs> But they did authorize him. So Paul tells us he did go through a process of being vetted, even by those apostles, that he didn't feel he needed their approval. But he did get their approval. So there's that interesting dynamic. But it's because the early church recognized that these 12 were not special people um, in terms of their base humanness or, or their intellect or anything else, but that they had been called in a special way and anointed with the Spirit in a unique way. 
It is the apostles in John who have the Holy Spirit breathed on them before the Holy Spirit is poured out on the church at Pentecost. So there, it's, we need to remember that for the early church trying to decide what books about Jesus' life were going to be authoritative for them, these are the passages that come up in those discussions. And so the decision is made that these, they have to be apostolic. They have to either be written by an apostle, written in the lifetime of the apostles, and circulated during the apostles' lifetime so that the apostles would have known of them and could have objected to their use and that sort of thing. And that's the debates that get raised. So John 14 is one of those passages that help us to understand why we eventually ha do have a New Testament and not just the First Testament. So anyway, um, that's about all I have to say about that, and it's mostly repeat of what I've said before, but it's good to remind ourselves. And again, in contemporary scholarship, and you'll hear this in preaching um, to a degree, depending on where you go. You'll certainly hear it in the classroom. Uh, many folks are concerned with the interpretation that the prophets are offering, the interpretation that the apostles are offering. It's very interesting to me, in a very sad way, that the part of the scriptures that are considered inspired is the interpretation, which is the part so many today are doubting. We seem to want to uncover the history, and that's what the, because once we have the history, we can interpret it for ourselves. And many, many theologians, many scholars, many Christians think that we're in a better position today to say what really happened and what it means than the people who experienced these things. I just want you to observe that that is a rejection of the Bible's own claims for its own authority and a rejection of why the early church set these texts apart, even though it is the thing to do today. Um, so, anyway, it's a weird thing that evangelicalism actually has done, because by trying to make the book, the Bible, primarily a history book, which many in our tradition have done, we've taken away what it's actually inspired to be, which is an interpretation of history. It's backfired on us. And in some ways, we laid the foundation as evangelicals for the current rejection of the authority of the prophets and apostles. And that is on us. If we're to reclaim it, we need to start saying again that what's inspired is the interpretation. The history is a given. They don't spend any time deciding whether Abraham existed. They just assume he existed. What's it, what they're doing is interpreting his life and trying to help us understand what it means. And that's where their authority lies, is in the interpretation. Um, at least according to Second Peter, that's where it lies. But we're in a strange day today where our search for the history of the Bible has led to an almost complete rejection in some quarters of the prophets and apostles' authority to interpret their history. So you wrestle with that, but my my the reason we're doing this whole study and I wanted to bring it up again is because the process that I'm trying to lead you through is a process that resists everything I've just said has happened. When we don't spend the time trying to figure out what these authors were trying to say, we reject their authority as interpreters. When what we're most interested in is getting a timeline of the events of biblical history and thinking that once we have the timeline, we've done our job, we are rejecting the authority of these folks to interpret that history. They weren't called to deliver that history. They were called to interpret that history. And so if we don't spend our time trying to figure out what they thought they were trying to say, then I think we spend our time trying not to read the Word of God while we're reading the Word of God. That's my assumption. 
That's why I don't like proof texting and why I would rather sacrifice an interpretation I love and has been a blessing to me on the altar of what the apostles are trying to say. Because in my view, my comfort is secondary to their intentions. My history is secondary to their intentions. My experiences are secondary to their intentions. If a passage has done a great work in my life, who cares? Their intentions are God's word. I cannot sacrifice them for my own good feelings or my own history that I like better than their story. I have to let them tell me what God's word is. I cannot simply decide what it's going to be for me. And that is what this whole process has been. And it gets sensitive when it's a passage one of us or many of us have named and claimed, and we've seen it in our own reading of our life fulfilled. Once that happens, we care much less about the prophets. We can see an event, but we don't know what it means. We need someone to help us understand what it means, and that's what the prophets were for. I mean, we can tell in the book of Kings, for instance, that they didn't, the, the people who wrote Kings were not present for the events. They had sources. Uh, the, the king, where it's called, the sources are called the Kings of the Annals of Judah and the Kings of the, I mean, and the Chronicles of the, uh, the Annals of the Kings of Judah and the Annals of the Kings of Israel. And they say that those sources are readily available. Anybody can read them. You see that in Kings. If you want to know more about such and such a king, you can look up in the Annals of the Kings of Israel. So these are sources everybody had access to. This was the official record of the history of Israel that they were working with. They weren't eyewitnesses to those events. They took those chronicles according to Kings itself, and they sat down and they interpreted what they meant. They went through the official records, and then they interpreted them. That's how we got First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. So the, the history was a given. The Bible doesn't spend any time trying to defend the historicity of it. It was a given. What the Bible tries to do is help us understand what the history means. What it means for you, what it means for me, what it meant for Israel, how we can avoid what happened to them. They look and see the patterns in history and how it repeats and the lessons we might learn, all that sort of stuff. That's what they're inspired to do. They're, they're kind of like um, modern-day historians going back and looking uh, f- uh, the life of Plato or the life of... of, uh, of uh, Achilles, for if he's got some human origin to that myth, and uh, trying to decide what the history we can uncover means. What the Second Peter insists is that their attempts to interpret are not human attempts. And uh, this, it's an important conversation, especially with this passage in 1 Corinthians, because this one has been used to mean all kinds of things. had a conversation this week uh, with an individual who said, that they had been thinking about the weak and the strong language in Paul and Romans, and then went on to describe a certain kind of weak person, trying to see if maybe if people are living in uh, certain kinds of sins we don't agree with, maybe we're supposed to bear with them for a while in those sins because they're weak, and the strong are supposed to bear with the weak. And I, I had to, it's a weird conversation when I get into something like that because I realize I have to tell this person that they're completely wrong in what they're doing. But they're not wrong necessarily in their sentiment. They just have to go someplace else. And so what my response to the person was, those are legitimate ways of understanding weak and strong. But they are nowhere in the ballpark of what Paul is talking about when he uses those terms. And then we went to Romans 14 and I tried to walk them through the passage. But what we typically do is we just grab hold of these things. We sit down, we think about them, and then we just come up with our explanations. And we don't mean to do that. But it just, just happens. This kind of a process that we're going through is is to resist the tendency to make ourselves the authorized interpreters.
of history. To let the prophets and apostles be what they were called to be. But we take their place so easily. It's a very great temptation for pastors. Because we have to read this thing and then say something to our people. And it's very easy to not like the way the prophets and apostles are going and feel like we could go in a more helpful direction. And the moment we do that, we make ourselves the authorized interpreters. Second Peter would argue we shouldn't do that. Um, but we often do it because it's easier to do that. And so I've been there too, and there are sermons I preach that if I could go back to where I preached them, I would take them back. We find our errors. But um, the, the better we get at this task, the more time we commit to it. Um, and the more we resist just quoting passages when we don't know anything about them. Um, we'll, we'll protect the prophets and apostles and their authority, at least in our context. Because that's what I'm, I'm hoping. So when you say something like, um, now after the series, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, when, when you quote that verse, for those who are here, at least you're now able to say to whom that was said. What prompted it? What are the limitations on those words? Were they absolute for all time, or did they have a limit or a shelf life? For those who were here, paid attention. You might have to look back on your notes. At least you can answer those questions. And, and that makes it more likely that you'll quote them appropriately, just to have more information. I mean, we're never, we're never perfect, no matter how much study we do. But we guarantee we will be flawed if we do no study. And that's... Uh, I think a guarantee. And some, I know we like to speak of the Holy Spirit protecting us. But if we serve a God who will protect us from error when we deliberately choose not to seek his face, we serve a different God than it looks like the one in Scripture is. He does protect us when we unintentionally fail. But when we have access to what we need to know and we deliberately choose not to do it and yet speak on his behalf anyway is he okay with that for me i don't think so it's fine to be wrong but it's not fine to be negligent and that's i think what we're talking about if I'm working on the roof of my house and I have a ladder up and I'm actively going up and down it and I climb down the ladder, I go into the garage and somebody comes and climbs up the ladder and falls off. Now, technically, that's partially my fault, but I was actively using the ladder, so it wasn't deliberate. But if I leave that ladder up overnight and a kid climbs up and he falls off the roof, I'm much more responsible because that's negligence, not just an accident. And this is what we're talking about. Some of us are negligent with the Word of God. Not just ignorant, negligent. And what we're trying to do is to learn some of the tools necessary to become more careful with it. Like any power, power can be used to devastating effect if it's used wrongly. And the Word of God is a double-edged sword. So we have to recognize the power of what we work with. This is the Word of God, right? All of us who are Christians, devotions, you're handling a live wire there when you open up this thing. This is a word that has torn down kingdoms and has built new ones up, that has undermined evil 
that delivers the truth of God to us. I mean, the stories Israel tells of the Ark of the Covenant that just had a few books of the Bible in it, and yet it took down monuments to pagan deities by itself with no help from anybody else. I mean, this is a powerful thing, right? We open it up. We should treat it the way you would a saw or a nail gun or something that could cut your arm off. <laughs> you, you, you handle it with reverence and with respect. When the Israelites came before the Ark of the Covenant, they came with fear and trembling. You know, we open up this word and we act like it's what? I don't know. I, I hope that you treat it with And so if we are persuaded that we have understood what the writer is trying to say, or at least we're in the ballpark, I think we have not been negligent. But I think we're negligent if we do no research, if we do no study, if we're not careful. If when we say, for instance, we're going to do 1 Corinthians today, if we don't look at the first time Paul uses the word temple, 1 Corinthians, understand what he means by it, and watch how he continues to use that term consistently through the book. If we jump to chapter 6 and we interpret chapter 6 without any reference to chapter 3, we're being negligent. But if we see it, if we're reading the whole thing and we're doing our best, then hey, just... You know, I might not build as good a house as somebody else, but it'll be, it'll be efficient. Actually, Paul gets into that in this passage, that there's the foundation is Jesus, and every worker has to build on top of that. And he's talking about leaders. He's talking about Apollos, who's a preacher. He's talking about Cephas, who's Peter, the head of the church. He's talking about himself. Everybody has to build on this foundation. The fire will come, and anything that's wood, hay, or stubble will be consumed, and only the precious stones will remain. And each one will have to account for his work before God. This is all in the passage we're going to read, actually. So we all have to build, but not everything we build will be of equal value and God's judgment will come on it. Now, woe be to the person who builds shoddily on purpose. <laughs> I think that's what I would say. Not by accident, not because we're frail and we're human, and we, you know, but because of negligence, intentional laziness with the word. That, I think, is what we're arguing against. All of us are probably wrong in our interpretations. If God took me to task on my sermons, I'm sure... You know, I, I couldn't even tell you how many of them he would have to correct. I would imagine all of them. But my goal before him is to not be negligent. I hope that's yours too. Especially when you speak to others on his behalf. And we all do that. We all share a testimony. We all witness. So it, it, this should make you afraid. But it shouldn't make you despair. I mean, my point is intentional negligence is what we're pushing against. So it's important uh, to memorize Scripture, but more important than the memorization of Scripture is to understand the context. I would rather see a young person be able to summarize Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 than to verse by verse quote, word for word quote, uh, one verse from that chapter in some particular English translation. I would rather they be able to sketch his argument. Because that puts the authority not on the literal word spoken, but on the prophet or apostle who's interpreting. But our, you know, we, we have not done that. That has not been what the church wants to do. Um, when we taught, when Jen and I taught uh, children's church, we tried to help the kids to be able to tell the story accurately. So not word for word memorization, but detail for detail accuracy. So we didn't let them take liberties when they acted out the story with any of the details. They had to be spot on the details, but it didn't matter what words they used to get at them as long as the details were spot on. And that's the way we tried to enculturate them. It's the same thing we're doing with our kids because it's the authors who are inspired. The details they chose to include are the important ones, even if I don't find them particularly dramatic or interesting. Or if I think it'd be fun to figure out what Ishmael thought about starving to death in the wilderness. 
well, that might be interesting. You might write a short story about that, but it destroys the scriptures to focus on it because it's not what the inspired authors put in front of us. So we waste our time. We take it out of their hands and we say, let me interpret this history on my own. This is fun. Something you didn't talk about. So I like this. Let's always be talking about what they're talking about. That's my point. I think that's what Second Peter is telling us to do. And I think um, there's a passage again in Corinthians um, where Paul says, you must learn what it means not to go beyond what is written. You find that verse. You see what Paul is trying to say. You must learn what it means not to go beyond what is written. It's a very uh, interesting thing for Paul to say. So here's our passage, 1 Corinthians 3, 16 to 17. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. So I'm just going to ask these questions. They're rhetorical. You, I don't want you to answer them, not putting anybody on the spot. But what's the context of that warning? What is happening in the Corinthian church that Paul feels the need to say that with respect to? What's the larger point that he's trying to make that helps us to better understand this statement? These are just the questions. Who are the you? Paul likes to use pronouns really deliberately. He uses yous and we's all the time. So who are the you? What type of destruction was Paul warning against? What, what's in his line of sight? What's destruction of the temple? Now this is a question I want you to think about. How have you heard this passage used in terms of contemporary application? I'll, I'll just put myself on the spot. I know that I have certainly heard it used to argue that anything we do that's harmful to our physical body is an affront to the Holy Spirit of God in us. So I've used it, I, I haven't used it this way, but I've heard people use it in terms of getting enough exercise, of not overindulging in food, of not getting drunk, uh, all kinds of things that have to do with bodily health. Um, so I've certainly heard it used that way. Uh, I've heard it used in terms of Christian community too and, and some other things. Yeah. Here's the context. So this is what's happening in 1 Corinthians. I'm, I'm not going to deal with all the passages because it would take too long, but these are the salient ones anyway that give us a sense of what's going on here at the beginning of Corinthians. And you have to remember for Paul, uh, he's addressing apparently a letter that the Corinthians wrote to him, and we don't have the letter. So Paul, at the beginning, he's dealing with stuff he wants to deal with, and that's true, I think, up till chapter 7. So through the end of chapter 6, Paul is setting the agenda for what he wants to talk about. But when you hit chapter 7, he, the... the the epistle changes, and he says, now about the things you wrote about. And he begins to deal with issues, apparently, that they inquired about, and he deals with them one by one. So Corinthians is a strange book because there's a, it's all over the place, because unlike Romans, where Paul has one kind of argument that he makes from beginning to end, almost like a theology, Corinthians is dealing with all kinds of subjects. Paul's organizing how he responds, but he's not the originator of most of the questions. After chapter 7. These first six chapters, Paul is setting the agenda for what he wants to talk about. So uh, that's where we are in the argument. Now, this is how he sort of begins. I mean, Paul always does his introductory material. He presents himself as an apostle. That's important because it's his kind of authoritative stamp. You need to listen to this. I'm not just any run-of-the-mill speaker. Uh, I'm an apostle. So here we go. And then he identifies them as people who have followed Jesus. Sometimes he'll call them the elect. Sometimes he'll call them the ones who are called out of the world. Whatever he says, he, he addresses them. And then he gives some personal communication, sometimes positive, sometimes negative. 
And then he gets into the letter. And here's where he's getting into the letter, into the thick of what he wants to address. So he, he begins here, I appeal to you, uh, brothers and sisters, the Greek word there is adelphoi, so technically brothers, but it was a term used in first century to refer to either <coughs> men or women. So that's why the newer translations do brothers and sisters. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Cephas is the Aramaic name for Peter. And still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. So no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. I, I, I like this because uh, at the beginning, Paul identifies that there's another person writing the letter with him. I think his name is Stephanus. You'll have to look it up. Um, but I have a feeling they had an argument right there where Paul says, I only, I only uh, baptized Crispus and Gaius. So you can hear Stephanus going, I think you baptized. Or, no, it's not Stephanus. It's another guy. You'll have to look at the beginning. So okay. Oh, Stosthenes. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you can imagine him speaking up, going, I, I, think, you, I think you baptized Stephanus. Okay, we'll put that in the parentheses. <laughs> I also baptized the household of Stephens. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. But, and then, so you can hear Paul saying, but it, none of that even matters. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. That's a little um, passive-aggressive for Paul. And Paul, of all the writers, is the most passive-aggressive. And if you know what that means, and you read Paul with those eyes, you see it a lot. This is a little one because we'll find out later that Apollos is a much better public speaker than Paul was. And one of the criticisms of Paul is that he didn't speak as well as Apollos. And you have this little thing that Paul was, I don't know what he means to say, but it almost sounds like he's saying, I intended not to speak eloquently because <laughs> I wanted Jesus to be magnified. You know, you get that little sense. But anyway, so not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So here we have the primary dispute that Paul is going to be talking about here at the beginning of the letter before he gets into the issues they wrote about, which is this issue of a church that is fracturing. And you cannot help but read this and feel like you're reading the beginning of denominationalism, right? The Wesleyans, the Arminians, the Calvinists, the Lutherans. Like, it, you just, you can't help but hear it, right? Now, granted, we have a lot of reasons to think, or at least to console ourselves, that we haven't gone this way. But again, later it's going to get into the baptism thing. So what a lot of scholars believe is happening in Corinth is that they're determining spiritual pedigree based on who baptized them. So if you were baptized by Paul, you're sort of a certain set. If you were baptized and brought to the Lord by Apollos, you're another set. If you were baptized by Peter, you could imagine some people saying, well, Peter, he's the head of the church, whatever they're doing. you know. And then others actually knew Jesus. You know, they were baptized, but of course they have to be the best ones, right? So you can see that dispute uh, going on, and baptism's huge uh, through this entire, which is why the scholars think that's primarily what's the case. So, so they're trying, whatever they're doing, the Corinthians, and you'll see this throughout the letter, are really interested on, on kind of getting the hierarchy within the church. Who's the most holy? Sure, you can live that way, but there's got to be a better way. 
And if you live the better way, then you're better than the people who don't live as good a way. And that's all over the place in, in Corinthians. Uh, from uh, There's a section of the church that thinks you have to be married to be holy. So in chapter 7 and 8, Paul is saying you can be single and you're just as good as everybody else. Apparently they thought the married were just a little bit of a leg up, which would have been a very Jewish thing. Maybe that's where they got it. And so they thought that, and Paul has to argue that singleness is okay. They also thought that if you were divorced, that you were lesser. And Paul has to say, well... You've got an argument there, but if one of you was divorced because they were the person didn't want to live with a Christian anymore, then that person's free. So, you know, he's trying to help them to better understand that there aren't hierarchies in Christ, and then that culminates in chapters 11, 12, and 13 when Paul is trying to say that we're all one body. We need all the parts. The, the least noble parts are probably the most sacred parts, as that's the truth with our own bodies. Not everybody can be a hand. Not everybody can be a foot. Not everybody can be an eye. So he's trying to help them understand how all the pieces fit together when they're interested in trying to figure out if heaven's here and earth is here, who's the closest and who's the furthest, and how do you tear it up? You know, maybe the tithers are up here, and, you know, <laughs> try and figure all that out. So Paul is very concerned about that whole mentality, very concerned about it. And so here he's talking to them at, in verse 10, that they need to be undivided. Now we move to chapter 3. He's going to get into some of the things that the cross implies in the verses I didn't quote. He's going to talk about the way the cross helps us to understand that these divisions are inappropriate. So you can look at some of that. But here we're back to the original issue in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 1. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you are not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. So Paul indicates that they, didn't, they thought that they got everything when they got the gospel, that they got everything they needed to know and they've just been working with it. Paul says, no, I just gave you kind of the milk. I was waiting for you to mature a little bit before I told you the rest. And you're still not ready for it after all this time because you're fighting over idiotic things. I mean, that's sort of Paul's impression. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you're not yet ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. You're still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? So just to say it that way means that they haven't understood anything. That's, that's Paul's point. I mean, just to use the language means you're all babies. I planted the seed, so Paul planted this church. I mean, that's He's the one who started the church in Corinth. Apollos watered it, so Apollos followed after him and did some apparently pretty charismatic and powerful preaching. If you remember the story in Acts, which you kind of have to go back to, uh, Paul didn't have much success in Corinth. It was a very, very tiny beginning to that church. It was a tough church. And uh, Acts tells us that Apollos came in and it flourished. So Paul kind of had this very tough ministry, maybe one or two converts. I think there was one household, if I recall the Acts story correctly, that converted. But it was a tough go for Paul. But Apollos comes in, and suddenly it catches wildfire. So th this is Paul saying, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. Like, this isn't about us. You know, that's, that's Paul's insistence. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they'll each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. Now that the building becomes 
the metaphor he uses from this point on. So he was using an agricultural metaphor before, planting and watering. Now he's moving to construction. So if you don't like the mixing of metaphors, you can't read Paul either because he shifts them all the time. But here we're moving now into a building metaphor. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care. So again, we see Paul's understanding of his apostolic authority. No one can lay a foundation other than Paul or the other apostles. I mean, that's his assumption. And in Ephesians, he takes that and he really amps it up. But uh, I laid a foundation as a wise builder. Someone else is building on it, but each one should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. So this is the foundation, to stick with Paul's metaphor, of his criticism of the false teachers in Galatia. They were trying to change the gospel. That's like trying to change the foundation. Paul's saying you cannot do that. You must stick with what I said. But if anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. So the context here, and I'm not going to ask you much about it because I want to get to the passage we're actually interested in, but the, so I'll just say this. These builders are not the people. We're, I mean, follow Paul's argument in the context. We're not talking about every person building their own particular life and then facing the judgment before God for what they built. That's just Maybe that's true. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the, the, these preachers, Apollos, Cephas, whoever else has come through. They're the ones building. The church is the building. The people are the building. And they're building with various things. And whatever is wood, hay, or stubble will be preserved, will be burnt down. So Paul's simple point is, I lay the foundation. No fire is going to test that. You get that? I mean, I tell you, he's the most arrogant person on earth if he's not right. The foundation is laid. Nobody can lay another. Everything else is built on that foundation and it will all be tested by fire. And God will judge each person's work. This is about the dispute over him and Apollos and Cephas. So this is uh, the way he is rolling. Now, verse 16, he, he moves that building metaphor because he hasn't told us what kind of building is being built till now. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? So this is what we're building, a temple. You yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst. Now, some of your older translations just said dwells in you. But what the, the newer translations are trying to catch is that the Greek you here is plural. It's always plural. It's not individual. It's, and it seems that Paul's dealing with it corporately. You together are the temple, not you individually are the temple. You together are the temple. And God's Spirit dwells in you together. Now, I'm not getting into whether or not the Holy Spirit lives in your heart. Go to other passages. All we're talking about is what Paul is trying to say here. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst? And midst is not there in the Greek. It's just the word you, but it's a plural you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred. And you together are that temple. 
Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you're wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools, so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight, as it's written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. I love how he just, if you haven't heard anything else I say, you can imagine if Paul was preaching this. If you haven't heard anything else I say, hear this. No more boasting, boasting about human leaders. We're done. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. So here are my questions. Well, I, I guess I get to the questions later. I kind of want to get to them now. But uh, all right, we'll wait. What's the origin of the temple analogy? Why is Paul calling the church a temple? And not the church meaning the building, but the church meaning the people. Why is he calling them a temple? Well, let's look at a couple of things here that are important for the history. First, the tabernacle or the temple in ancient Israel was the place where God's spirit was said to dwell. It was a build, At first it was a tent, and then it was a building. And the belief in Israel was not that God didn't exist in other places. I mean, you get plenty in the Psalms, like where David says, where can I flee from your presence, right? I mean, there's a sense that God is everywhere. But God is not apparently everywhere. I mean, there's not just anywhere that you can bow down for the Israelite people and start to pray and have him draw near to you. They really felt that God had promised he would be responsive to them and accessible to them in one place all the time as a consistent, permanent thing, and it was the temple. That's where he was going to be. And so even today, when Jewish people pray, Orthodox Jewish people, they still pray towards Jerusalem, towards the Temple Mount. So they still pray to the east. And that's because that's where God promised to hear from. So the temple is where God was said to dwell, not like it contained him and he was nowhere else, but the one place they could be sure of. It was their place of confidence. And that's important for us because the Gospel of John tells us that when the Word became flesh, he tabernacled among us. So oftentimes you see the word made his dwelling. But the, the Greek is literally he tented or he tabernacled. He pitched his tent among us. This is a picture that the tabernacle that was one place in Jerusalem built now was walking around. That Jesus' flesh was somehow a living tabernacle. That has now become, for Paul, a guiding metaphor. Because if we are the body of Christ, as Paul thinks so, and Jesus was a living, moving temple in which the Holy Spirit of God dwelt, then we, being his body, are also the temple. So Paul is, is kind of doing his moves based on Jesus' teachings. Now, how does he know the Holy Spirit is in us? Where do those promises come from? And is it in an individual, or does it have to be in a group? These are the questions I want to address next. The Holy Spirit... Um, and the numbers two or three, are two or three witnesses, are so important. And I'm hoping you're surprised how important they are. But uh, I want to talk a little bit about this need for a small group, at least two or three, or more, but at least two or three. Um, so we're going to look first at the prophets. Now, I, I almost put Genesis 1 as the first place for this, but no human would have witnessed it. Um, but notice how many witnesses there are in Genesis 1 to the creation of the world. How many? You could argue three, but there's explicitly two. Right? God 
and the spirit hovering over the waters, right? The spirit of God. So you, you, you have explicitly two. You could argue, as John does later, that the word is also there, and that would make your three, right? But you at least have explicitly two witnesses to the creation of the world. How do we know it happened this way? There were two witnesses. Who were they? God and the Holy Spirit. Why does that matter? Well, the two witnesses are extremely important. It's a pattern that runs all through the Bible. The, the, the first overt verse that it happens in front of people is in Genesis 18. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. This is the beginning of the Sodom and Gomorrah story. So three men come to Abraham. He is hospitable as he should be. He takes care of them. They tell him they're going to go destroy the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. And the way God says it is, a word has come to me, risen up to me, about the wickedness of that city. I'm going down to see for myself if it is as bad as I've heard. That's what he says. And how many does he send? Three. Because everything must be established by two or three witnesses. So God might have heard one voice. Who knows who it was? I imagine in my imagination maybe Satan. You know, just like in Job, came up and said, you heard about Sodom and Gomorrah? And God, you can imagine, says, I can't take your word for it. We're going to go down and investigate for ourselves. Now, I know that the theology, you've got to play around with it. But, but here, there are three witnesses who come to Abraham. One of them remains behind and talks with Abraham, while the other two go to the city, which means we have two witnesses in the city. So that happens in Genesis 18. That event in the life of Abraham becomes a pattern that is now repeated through the entire rest of the Bible. It becomes a heart of the law. It's the heart of Paul's teaching, and it's the heart of Jesus' teaching. This is so significant that nothing can be claimed if there are not two or three witnesses. So we'll keep going so you can see these passages. Deuteronomy 19.15 says, One witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of any crime or offense that they may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. We saw that pattern in creation. We saw it in Sodom and Gomorrah. It's insisted in the law. So nobody, you must always have two or three witnesses. One individual human is never enough. 1 Corinthians 14, this gets, and that's going to be repeated in the Deuteronomy. Obviously, once it's in the law of Moses, it's all over the Old Testament. So that Deuteronomy 1 gets repeated dozens of times. 1 Corinthians. So you might say, but that's the Old Covenant. Who cares about that? We're under a New Covenant. Something different is happening. Well, here we go. 1 Corinthians 14 is later in the same book. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two, or at the most three should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. You hear the implication there? They have to say the same thing. You need two or three witnesses to verify it's from God. So this isn't three different tongues. This is three people speaking in tongues that are going to say the same thing. It has to be. Two or three witnesses. And someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Keep it private. 2 Corinthians 13.1. So this is the next book to the Corinthians. Paul says, this will be my third visit to you. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So here... Um, Paul is actually harshest on the Corinthians in this book. Why? It's his third time, third witness. Right Now he can really let him have it, and he does. But everything has to be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. You see that pattern from Deuteronomy is still for Paul determinative for stuff in the New Covenant Church. 1 Timothy 5.19 Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. I've actually enacted this where people have been accused of things where only one person told me. If I can't find two 
other witnesses and I won't even entertain the accusation. I mean, it's the way that it goes. Now, the question you have to ask is, can evidence be considered a witness? And that's a legal question that's being asked in our culture. And the culture has said, yes, evidence can be seen as a witness. We have to wrestle in the church if that's a sufficient witness for us. But again, the principle is here. Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it's brought by two or three witnesses. Matthew 18, this is Jesus. In case you thought, well, that's just Paul. He's a Pharisee. He can't get out of Deuteronomy. He's limited by his culture. I hope you'd never say those things. But if you did, let's look at Jesus. Matthew 18. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault, just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Another quote of Deuteronomy 19.15. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This is um, just a comment about that verse. It's rabbinic speak. This is stuff that you see in the rabbis in Jesus' day all the time. And it, it, it means however you interpret the moment um, will, will be authoritative, he says to the apostles. So binding and loosing is about interpreting which reading is authoritative and which one is not. So that's the rabbis use that all the time uh, when they're trying to dispute a, a point of doctrine or something. They'll say, well, which should be bound and which should be loosed? And Jesus says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So here, again, he's giving the apostles and the church the authority to make these decisions. Again, truly I tell you, that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Again, two or three witnesses. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. <clears throat> so there is a consistent requirement for community. Not a, not a big community. I mean, two or three is fairly small. But a consistent requirement. And here is the rub. Jesus promises to be with them where two or three are gathered. For the early church, this becomes the foundation for the belief that we must gather together if we are to experience the presence of the Holy Spirit. I know it goes against our culture because most of us think we experience him best when nobody's present. But you might say, but this is just Jesus will be present. That's true, but in the Gospel of Matthew, by the end, Jesus' presence is to be understood after he ascends to heaven by the presence of the Holy Spirit. So that's... Um, Jesus and Spirit are, are uh, together here. So this principle, I mean, at least I hope I've illustrated to you how important this two or three is, and why Paul is more apt to call the temple of the Holy Spirit a group of Christians and not an individual Christian. That's what I'm trying to illustrate to you. Um, in the context did that anyway, but this, I hope, really helps to drive home why Paul can't go there to say that the... I would say that, um, I mean, some of, I know I mean, some have been in know. my John study and nobody liked it, but I continue to say that this was said to the apostles. They're the only audience here. Yeah. But I think Paul extends the principle in 1 Corinthians to understand that we actually have to have a group for the Holy Spirit to be present. And so I would say that there's obviously a principle that expands beyond the apostles. But I would say this promise is another one of those foundational texts for why the apostles are the only ones who can write scripture. Because whatever they bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever they loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So however they interpret the word, it's authoritative. I think that's a promise to them, not to you and me. But the Roman Catholic Church would disagree. They use this passage as one of their supporting passages for the Pope's infallibility 
and for the hierarchies, um, special inspiration. Uh, but I would say it's just for these apostles and that it couldn't be passed down, whereas the Pope believes that it has been passed down. We might as well talk about him. He's here, right? <laughs> well, not, not here in New Hampshire. But here in America, yeah. So the principle of two or three witnesses is important in the First and New Testament. And there are actually a lot more passages we could have quoted, like, for instance, when Jesus claims that he is I am in John. They want to know where, whose witnesses are. And he says, the witnesses are I and my father. And they say, where's your father? Because they think he's talking about Joseph, who's dead. And they, they think he's nuts. And he keeps saying, I don't need any other corroboration because we are the two or three. <laughs> I can testify on my own behalf because the father's my witness. So he and I, we're the witnesses. But they don't get that. And once it becomes clear what he's saying, they try to kill him. Uh, but again, the two or three witnesses are important even for Jesus. If he wasn't Trinity, he couldn't testify on his own behalf. Is that interesting to you? But there it is. So, so in the First Testament, that pattern apparently began uh, with God's evaluation of Sodom and Gomorrah, probably in creation, but the first time a human witnessed it um, in Sodom and Gomorrah. And, uh, of course, because those two angels did witness the evil and they could testify to it, God destroyed the city. So that's the way it goes. Jesus and the apostles seem to embrace the same basic premise, and Jesus suggests that where two or three are gathered, he'll be present, and his presence is the Holy Spirit after he ascends. So this has led to the New Testament insistence, it would appear that the community of faith is the new covenant temple of the Holy Spirit. It's where the Holy Spirit dwells, in the community of faith. And so for Paul, if we divide each other and devour each other, what we're actually destroying is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So we spend a lot of time worrying about whether we're eating, we're acting healthy, some folks, because they don't want to hurt the temple. And yet we gossip and we backbite, which is actually the only thing Paul ever talks about. But that's the destruction of the temple that's of great concern to Paul, because the temple of the Holy Spirit is the people. So the people have to be together. So here, Paul says, if anyone destroys this temple, What's he referring to? If anyone destroys the fellowship of believers. Who will destroy them? You and me? No. God. So there's another passage to consider, because sometimes it's thrown into this mix, thinking, well, that's maybe that's true in 1 Corinthians 3. But what about 1 Corinthians 6, which says, and I'll just read it so you can see where the argument will go. And if you don't know Greek, uh, you're going to be a little confused here. Um, but I'm gonna, you can underline your Bible. I'll explain to you what you're seeing. I have the right to do anything, you say, but everything is not beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however... Is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? 
You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So here's what's interesting. I love the, the well, I don't know if I love this, but the translations can, are never quite clear. Does anybody have a translation that says something different than what I just read in terms of what's plural and singular? Because this is a fairly new translation. I have two others that of the same NIV that says something different. Specifically, do you not know, this is verse 19, what does yours say? Do you not know that your, is yours singular or plural? Plural. Singular. All right, there you go. Okay. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, is how some translations used to translate it. This mind says now, your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you've received from God. You are not your own, you are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your singular or plural? Singular. Mine is plural. Yours is singular. Let me tell you what's happening. Here's the difficulty. Greek has a plural you. We don't. I say you. I can mean one person. I can mean five people. I can mean a thousand people. I just say you. Unless we want to go with the southerners and have the y'all. No. <laughs> Which we don't have right up here. Um, and for some reason, nobody wants to put that in the Bible. I don't know why. But it would really help us if they did. And matter of fact, I had a Greek teacher who was from the south who required we translate plural use with y'all. Always. <laughs> uh, so in Greek, there are, there's a singular you and a plural you. What's happening here in verse 18 is that all of these yous are plural. All of the yous are plural. So in verse 19, uh, oh, I'm sorry, in verse 19, do you, plural, do you all, not know that your, you alls, it's plural, bodies is not plural. Bodies is singular in the Greek. So it reads, do you all not know that your all's body, singular, is a temple of the Holy Spirit, singular? who is in you all, whom you all have received from God. You all are not your all's own. You all were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your all's body, singular. That's what it says in the Greek. Now, the reason this has been confusing is how do you translate that in English? Well, the King James did it perfectly because we don't have a plural you. Your body. But the your was plural. We didn't know it because we don't have a plural you, but they perfectly translated it. The NIV now, in its most recent permutation, understands the way we understood it. Not the way it was written, but the way we understood it. And we took this all to be individual. So they said, well, let's make sure those yous are understood as plurals, and then we'll make everything else plural so you can take it individually. But it's not plural in the Greek. And what's important here is that Paul is actually saying the same thing he said in chapter 3. All of you together are the temple of the Holy Spirit. But when one of you, who's a member of that body, goes out and has sex with a prostitute, you've united the prostitute to the body of Christ because you are a part of the body. And Christ is not to be united with a prostitute. So his point again, though, is not that you individually are the temple of the Holy Spirit, but you together are. But what you do individually affects the body of Christ because you're part of it. And that's very clear, it seems to me, in the Greek. And the King James did a fine job of translating it. But because nobody who read the King James knew Greek, they didn't know what they were seeing. And so here, now you can see, and the NIV has just muddled it by trying to let us take it individually. Which they 
So, so what I want to say, because we're at the end here, is that Paul's argument, and, and we, you know, I, I just got into a dispute today with a pastor who posted online uh, uh, an article arguing that to be overweight is to be in sin, and that it hurts the witness of the church, it violates the holiness of Jesus. And it shows that we are rebelling deliberately against God to be overweight. So I saw that and I thought, hmm, yeah, this is the whole gluttony as one of the cardinal sins, right? And it's also that one of the primary arguments in that article was your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. If you fail to care for it and be a good steward of it, then God will destroy you. And the article went on to argue that all the health problems we have with obesity and things like diabetes and all that is God's judgment on us for failing to take care of the temple of the Holy Spirit. So I just read that article, it was just this week, it just was fortuitous. And I, I said, in as nice a way as I could, that's hogwash, it's not biblical. Maybe it's true uh, that, that if we reap the, our own rewards for, for doing, but that's not what Paul is talking about. Paul is talking about gossip and backbiting and making allegiances and trying to put tears of holiness in the church and all that kind of stuff. That's what he's talking about. And he's anybody who destroys the body, God will destroy him. That's Paul's target. It's not um, whether or not you, you are really taking care of your physical body and making sure it's healthy. Now, don't hear me saying that you're not supposed to. I mean, sure, take care of your body. It's really, we pay the penalty for not doing it just naturally. But that's not what Paul is talking about. For Paul, it's where two or three are gathered. It's where the community is gathered that we are the fleshly body of Christ. Jesus is the temple of the Holy Spirit. He tabernacled among us. So are we. So if we're going to apply this text to today and do it with integrity, our line of sight cannot be whether or not someone can do 10 pull-ups. Body mass index is not suddenly the new scarlet letter. Right? Somebody committed adultery. You remember the story? They had to put a scarlet A on them so they were marked. Body mass index is not, does not, Paul's not arguing that that is the scarlet letter, that you walk around, everybody knows you're a sinner now. What he is arguing, and what we need to teach, is that the unity of the body of Christ and the fellowship of believers is sacred, because it is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Those of us who would undermine the fellowship of believers over these kinds of issues. Now, Paul, Paul is actually quite, well, read Galatians, harsh with false teaching. He seems to think it's fine to put them out of the church, even if it causes divisions. I mean, we, we see that in, in Galatians, so I don't want to overread Paul. But for issues like this, he finds it to be an abomination to divide the church over such things. And so here we have Paul telling us that if we destroy the fellowship of believers, we will stand under God's judgment. That's the argument here. So that should be the application. Why? Because Paul is inspired not simply in the words he says, which we can give any context we want, but in the argument he's making, because he is interpreting the life of the church. And that's his inspiration. So I could say, yeah, but you could use temple of the Holy Spirit in other ways. Yes, you could, but Paul didn't. So who's authorized to speak God's word? You or him? I feel like you have to decide. If I just take it out of Paul, use it any way I want, you're the authorized interpreter. 
but we must submit to Paul because he is the apostle, not us. And so my insistence is we can apply this to today in ways that Paul wouldn't have thought of, maybe. Because I think we have ways of, di of dividing, maybe, that he... Bullying online? Paul, there's nowhere in Paul's probably concept that you could just type a few words online and the whole world could see how much you hated the sermon today or whatever else. You know what I mean? So there are plenty of ways to undermine the fellowship of believers today that would never have been in Paul's line of sight that we can make applications to today, but they must be consistent with the argument that he's making. They must be in the same trajectory of thought. We can't just take Paul as some sort of a raw material and then apply him any which way we want, thinking, well, he said temple of the Holy Spirit, and he meant this, but I'm going to mean this because I like it better, and I'm just going to go this way. You just can't, we just can't do that. That is trying to build on another foundation. Do you understand what I mean? Like We have to build on Paul's foundation. We're not allowed to decide the foundation on which we build. Paul defines the terms. Paul makes the playing field. We play on it. We do things he didn't do, but we don't do things on other fields. And that's why we do this work. So I'm going to say things Paul never said, but I can't say things Paul would never have said. That's the distinction. That he did not say yes, that he could not say or would not say no. So I think, can churches split? Apparently, yes. Paul told them to put all those false teachers in Galatia out of the church. And I imagine they didn't stop teaching because that's the way people are. So these splits happen, but they have to happen for very certain reasons. And the reason Paul gives over and over again is if the gospel has changed. If the gospel has changed, we must stand against false teachers. But if the gospel is the same and we're just talking about the building that's being built, unity, not uniformity, is key. So have denominations violated this? I'm sure they have. Have, have denominations not violated I'm, I'm sure they haven't. <laughs> and this is the pickle we're in. But anytime we think of our loyalty to Wesleyanism or Arminianism or Calvinism as somehow prior to Christ, one of the ways we try to make sure that we don't violate the spirit of this, at least, and maybe there are better ways, is that we would never exclude anyone from the Lord's table, for instance. If someone baptized in another tradition, we'd never ask them to be baptized in the Church of the Nazarene. They were baptized into Jesus. We try not to make those competitions, but you'll still find Wesleyans who think being Wesleyan is inherently superior to being Calvinist. Now you're sitting in Paul's line of sight. Because we think of the church we shouldn't disrupt the fellowship of as the one that meets with us in our local congregation, but Paul's target is on the church which means how you and I relate with assemblies folks and, and Methodists and all others. Now you say, but what if they're teaching heresy and the gospel has changed? Well, that is a different conversation. But here with them, we have to approach them as false teachers um, and look to Paul for that. Right? So I'll let you have the final word.